A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Today, I'm delighted we're joined by Tim Poole, uh, a YouTube sensation, original kind of gonzo journalist who has really led the way in a whole load of media aspects uh, and is currently a strong critic, I would say, of the Biden administration, amongst other things. Hi, Tim. Hey, how's it going? Really, really well. I was actually just sort of reminding myself of your journey in preparation for this. And it occurred to me that it's 10 years now since the Occupy protests, which first propelled you into fame. Um, It's a very different world now, isn't it? I mean, yeah, definitely. Back then, Occupy was was growing off of independent media. They, They had their own newspaper called the Occupied Wall Street Journal. They used Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. And I used Ustream live streaming technology and mobile apps to be able to broadcast what was going on. Today, many of these people, people I knew at Occupy have flipped. They're advocating for censorship. They, uh, some of these people, I've, I, I, there's one guy I've known for a decade, now is playing these out of context media manipulation games. And it's surprising to me to see, for them, I suppose it was always just a means to an end, a tactic. And this is not to say every single Occupy uh, activist because many of them actually went and voted for Trump. In a way, what we've seen is that sort of anti-corporate, anti-capitalist, anti-globalization agenda has moved from being something in the sort of fringes that was thought of as a left-wing project to almost something that is now more associated with the right. Is that, do you think we can say that? I don't know how any of this makes sense in terms of, you know, these people and their past and their principles. Because we saw, you know, if you go back even further to the battle in Seattle, which was like, you know, late 90s, I think it was 99. These, these were leftists. These are people on the left that were protesting against the World Trade, or- Trade Organization and a lot of these globalist free trade policies. For the longest time, I remember the left was talking about not free trade, but fair trade. Now, all of a sudden, you get Donald Trump, who's running as a Republican, arguing against these free trade agreements, even Bernie Sanders. Yet somehow now... The left today that opposed major corporations are the ones primarily saying private companies have a right to regulate speech. 
They're the ones who are, I guess, either overlooking or ignoring many of these free trade agreements, which are hurting the working class. And it used to be the right, as even Bernie Sanders said, that a po that was in favor of open borders. Now, apparently, it's many on the left that advocate for open borders. So there's been this strange realignment, which, in my opinion, shows that many of these people from Occupy Wall Street and from these past protest movements were more interested with tr in, in tribal victory than they were in the actual cause. I think now we're going to see something reminiscent to what happened when Barack Obama got elected. Many of these people who are critics of Trump are immediately going to start defending the exact same thing done by Joe Biden. There's a really good example of a viral meme going around this verified Twitter journalist saying, oh, Donald Trump has all these kids in cages. Now that Joe Biden actually reopened these migrant child facilities, the same account is now saying, well, what's he supposed to do? He can't just leave the kids out there in the middle of nowhere. So you can clearly see that it's it's true for many in, in the Democratic Party and true for many conservatives as well. But I think for the right in this country right now, for whatever reason, it tends to be the exception, not the rule. Whereas with the media and the Democratic establishment, it tends to be the rule and not the exception. So, I mean, there's a lot in what you just said, but the, the this idea that the kind of establishment media is now aligned with with big tech, with some big corporate interests, and certainly with the Democratic Party in the US. Do you think that's new if we're scanning over the last 10 years, or do you think that was also true back then? This was true back then, but it's substantially worse today, right? So a good example is the Hunter Biden story about, well, the story about the FBI investigating Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's brother. Twitter suppressed this, Facebook suppressed this, and even NPR said, we're not gonna report on it because it's not news. Then what do we wait, like a couple weeks after the election? And then they come out and say this story, actually the whole time it was true. So when you see media organizations that are supposed to be objective and reporting the facts say, we won't cover this story, it's not true, it's conservative, fake news, and big tech agrees with them and says, we won't allow people to share this, we'll restrict it, there's clearly alignment there. And even Jack Dorsey has come out and said they made a, a mistake on that one. The problem for, for Twitter, and for everything Jack Dorsey says, because we, ju we just had this hearing the other day in Congress, Jack Dorsey keeps just saying, yep, we made a mistake, yep, we made a mistake. Well, at a certain point, Jack, you gotta stop listening to the establishment Democrat media apparatus. Right, so how do you think it actually happened? How did it happen that progressives or people who are kind of intuitively wanna be against the system have somehow found themselves so much in line with, with so many powerful institutions? I think social media manipulation plays a big role in this. I think during Occupy Wall Street, social media was utilized by many of these activists to get their message out. And then over the past several years, we've seen an inversion where uh, powerful institutions, government agencies realized the power of social media manipulation, particularly through something called sock puppetry, which is when one person will operate numerous accounts. This is just one aspect of how, say, the United States government and private security contractors have been able to manipulate public opinion using social media. In the early days of the, uh, you know, of the of social media, we saw the Arab Spring. Activists were able to utilize Facebook to organize revolutions. In the United States, we saw something kind of like that. I wouldn't call it a revolution, but people used Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and other platforms to organize massive protests. At a certain point, conversations started to emerge with Democrat Party operatives and as well as Republicans particularly. So I actually have been good friends with Brittany Kaiser, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower for quite some time. And I've actually been privy to some of these conversations 
where individuals, powerful donors and Democratic Party uh, representatives and things like that realized they needed to use social media to build support. What ends up happening then is these regular people who were getting the message out about Occupy Wall Street were influencing others to fight for their cause. Uh, for instance, opposing Wall Street bailouts, big bank, big bank bailouts and things like that. At a certain point, the Democratic Party started to utilize social media much, much better and then influence these same people to support them, support their causes. And they did it in very effective ways, notably with um, conspiracy theory blogs like Occupy Democrats, for instance. And I say that because they have been certified by third party fact checking agencies as mostly a Democrat conspiracy theory blog. Now, that's not to say Republicans don't do this and conservatives don't do this. It's just that Democrats have been way better at it. I mean, in a sense, there are two big changes that have happened to in the world of social media since 2011. I mean, when you were there with your drones flying across uh, these protests, there was a real sense that the new technology, new social media was this sort of insurgent people power force that was going to hold the powerful to account. And then two things happened. First of all, money, they became the biggest companies in the world, and therefore they became on the side of capital as opposed to against them. And surely the other thing that happened was was Donald Trump, because that in a way radicalized the, the liberal side by frightening them and feeling that they needed to clamp down. I mean, do you think that's right? Uh, to an extent, I think before Donald Trump decided to run for president, Twitter was losing users and ratings were going down across the board for these media companies. Shane Smith, the CEO of Vice said, I believe this was in 2014, that we could expect to see a bloodbath in digital media as advertising rates collapse, layoffs you know, hit, and these investments sour. Well, when Donald Trump decided to run for office, he became this, this, this obsession for the American people. For people on the right, they viewed him as somebody who was going to stick it to the man, fight the establishment, and tell him to you know, basically F off. For the left, there was an opportunity among those in establishment, you know, powerful positions in media, to make articles that generate clicks and make money. And for the Democratic Party, it was an opportunity for them to win votes. So it sort of became this perfect storm where CNN became the orange man bad network as the Babylon Bee called them, how they made fun of them. And it was something we, we saw called the Trump bump. All of a sudden, Twitter was gaining users. All of a sudden, these digital media outlets ratings were going up, their viewers were going up, CNN's ratings were through the roof. And in the Trump era, we saw CNN reached some of its highest ratings in its history. Tucker Carlson became the highest rated show in cable news history with 5 million viewers per night. And then when Donald Trump left office, now we're in what's called the Trump slump. They're saying ratings are collapsing, CNN is down. So I think this merger happened because the media wanted to make money. So they used Trump and milked it for all it was worth, shock content rage bait. And then the Democrats used that because it got them votes. And that's how that weird merger kind of happened. And yet they've kicked him off. I mean, that's what's so interesting, um, you know, and, and I remember at the time when Twitter and Facebook banned Donald Trump, some people were making the argument that it's not going to work anyway. That, you know, they were like, oh, well, if you ban him, he'll find other outlets. He'll start a new platform. He'll appear somewhere else. I think we can now say in retrospect that it has worked. It's extraordinary how how quiet it feels like it is from from the Trump quarter. And I, well, I find that chilling personally, that actually it's a case of censorship succeeding. It, no, it's not. It hasn't worked at all. 
Donald Trump has been sending out media advisories for some of the most inane things. The other day, I got an email from the office of the 45th president where he's like, I just did a podcast with Lisa Booth of Fox News. And I'm like, okay, why am I getting emailed this? Donald Trump has still found a way to communicate. It is true that he's quiet, but this is not because of censorship. If Donald Trump wanted to at any point, he could have joined Parler or Gab or Minds or any one of these other platforms. He's not doing it. And the reason is, I think it's probably a combination of ignorance and strategy. And it's a, it's a funny thing to say there's a combination of, but I think Donald Trump doesn't understand why he should have joined one of these other platforms a long time ago. And he's getting advice from people like Kushner saying, don't do it. What I mean by strategy, however, is that Donald Trump thinks his name is worth a lot of money. So the latest report is that Trump is planning to launch his own social network using his brand, in which case it seems Trump's real motive is, hey, if I'm going to if I'm going to join a social media site that's going to make them worth a billion dollars, it'll be my social media site. So perhaps he needed to wait until he was out of office before he could actually do it. Do you think that'll work if he does that? It's hard to say. Um, I've been asked by a lot of people, you know, will big tech ban Trump's network the same way they did Parler, which now appears to be uh, more and more, a, a, you know, colluded effort between the Silicon Valley companies to stamp out a competitor. I wonder if they're going to allow it and actually encourage it to a certain degree because their ratings are down, because they are losing users. I mean, Twitter, Twitter's uh, losing a ton of users over this. People are seeing their follower counts go down. Because a lot of people were just on Twitter to follow the president and hear what he had to say. And now that he's gone, they don't. If Trump launches a new network, there's going to be an incentive among CNN and MSNBC and all these, these news outlets. As they see their ratings collapse, they know a post from Donald Trump about whatever they can monetize with rage content. It's hard to say, though. There's a, there's a good reason to believe that they'll try and shut down a competitor because the big tech companies don't want to lose their users and their, their net worth, their value. And it's also possible media companies start, for some reason, just ignoring the, the, comp the competition for big tech and just focus on Donald Trump himself because it'll get, it'll get them clicks, it'll get them views, and maybe they'll make some more money. I mean, what's interesting, though, hearing you talk is it is their decision whether they allow it or not, right? I mean, what we saw with Parler is although theoretically the app was allowed, it then got pulled by the Android store, it then got, you know, I believe even the servers that were hosting it, which were Amazon, then got pulled. So ultimately, it is within the gift of big tech whether Trump is going to start a new platform or not. And that is quite a chilling kind of revelation, isn't it? It, it is. Um, but I think there, there's, two, there's two ways to view this. Uh, actually, there's more than two, but it's interesting. I think that it is extremely dangerous for the world, particularly for the United States, but anybody who uses Android and iOS technology, that they control the app stores, that Amazon will collude with these companies, at least it appears that that's the case. We learned recently, according to the Wall Street Journal that actually reviewed the evidence, Parler reported violence on their platform and threats of violence to the FBI more than, more than a month or two in advance to the Capitol, the storming of the Capitol. Yet these big tech companies used that as pretext to ban Parler, even though we now know the organizing actually took, took place on Facebook. So it seems to be a, a you know, collusion between these companies. But I do think one of the problems with centralized big tech social media is that Twitter's interests are going to be heavily, uh, heavily influenced by American politics. And that's going to affect a bunch of other countries creating this weird kind of progressive American cultural supremacy. This is something that I and many other activists, particularly on the left, talked about. 
that it makes no sense that Twitter would impose its American values on other countries around the world. That's essentially America spreading its influence, forcing these companies to use their platforms, either through sanctions or more importantly, Apple and Android can just ban you if you oppose them. They're making sure that their technological uh, systems are the only systems other countries can use. I mean, we've seen that in this weird year that we've just had, the pandemic year, it feels like American political ideas and ideologies have been exported around the world faster than ever before. Um, obviously, we had the Black Lives Matter protests last summer. They were happening in Amsterdam and Berlin and London and all over the world in response to it, someone who was um, sadly killed on American soil. Um, that was one of the moments, I think, where we were all like, hold on, we're in a new moment here that actually what happens in America it happens everywhere. And we heard from uh, from French political leaders that the American leftist political ideology is, 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 is creating a risk for France that it could destroy their culture and their way of life. I mean, that was a pretty bold statement to make, but I don't think they're wrong. I mean, you, you've got a very, very strong, very, very fringe, but growing political ideology in the US. And this is, an, this is a worldview held by people like Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey, I've had the pleasure of speaking with him in, in many private and public settings. And it's clear based on, if you look at the, the Joe Rogan episode uh, I did with Jack, their worldview is particularly, well, what's the right way to put it? I, I don't wanna be disrespectful by saying fringe, but that's a general idea. The ideas they hold are held by a very, very small minority of people in the world. Their worldview about say critical gender theory is not held by a majority of anyone in any country. In fact, in the United States, it's held by a very small minority of people. Yet these are the rules of a platform with 330 million users, including foreign officials, Chinese officials, Iranian officials. And so if Jack Dorsey can tell you what you can or can't talk about, it's no surprise that in France, we're seeing the spreading of this fringe ideology into other countries. It's no surprise that Black Lives Matter protests are happening in countries where, I, I gotta be honest, it makes very little sense. I can understand if there's a protest over the police killing in a city like Chicago that has very serious problems with racial division and gun violence. But to see these protests happen in you know, Europe, it's just strange. It's particularly strange when they're literally protesting in Europe over the death of Mike Brown, as if the protests in Europe can influence American policy. They can't. But that's the power of social media. And that's what happens when you have ideological CEOs that only enforce rules to a, you know, based on a fringe subset of political beliefs. It's not just technology. I mean, I think that's exactly right in terms of social media. It's also culture because Netflix has taken over and which means that all of those European kids and people in South America are watching the same shows that are coming out of the US. The Hollywood machine essentially controls global um, film culture, music is the same. And it seems like in all of those different industries, the gatekeepers, the people who decide what ultimately makes it or doesn't, share this kind of ideology. So it, it is a incredibly powerful force uh, across all of culture. Yeah, I, I wonder, um, you know, I, I had an interview recently with Jody Shaw. She was a former staffer at Smith College. She quit because she said she was facing a hostile work environment due to anti-white racism, to put it bluntly. And she, the story she told was that when she started to see the rise of this ideology, 
constantly saying, you know, how white people are bad oppressors and they have to constantly, you know, berate themselves or apologize for who they are, even though they personally haven't done anything. She said she didn't say anything because it's not something that white people normally do. But eventually she realized she couldn't take it anymore. She couldn't just sit back and constantly be insulted and demeaned simply for her race. And so she stood up, she filed a complaint, she ended up quitting. And then now she, uh, she's, she's filing this complaint with something called the Equal, Opportun the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which handles uh, cases against companies that violate people's civil rights based on you know, uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I bring the story up because I'm wondering how many regular Americans just don't know about what's going on. They don't understand what this ideology represents and what it means for many people who say are white or at least look white. For this woman, Jody Shaw, it's you know 2020, it, it was 2019 or 2018 when this is happening, yet there are many people who have already experienced the negative impacts of some of this ideology you know, five, six years ago. And I wonder if as our culture gets rapidly shifted, adopting critical theory, regular people might actually start to revolt because the changes are happening too fast and because they're racist. I mean, many of these policies just harm people and insult them based on immutable, immutable characteristics and things they've never done. And I think at a certain point, people just start rejecting that. Perhaps a little optimistic though. Do you feel like you get called racist or the bad guy or right wing or what's happened to you and your experience since you've been calling out these things in the past few years? It's a far cry from being the friend of the Occupy movement 10 years ago. Oh, I get called. I get called everything. It literally makes no sense. And I'm quite enjoying it, actually. Vice, for instance, I used to work there and they're a particularly left ideology company. They called me an online. Uh, what do they say? An online lefty. They called Vice called me this because I was a very uh, uh, I was a staunch supporter of Tulsi Gabbard. I contributed to her campaign. I thought she was the best option for the for the presidency. Wasn't very confident she'd win. Recently, a conservative website called me liberal journalist engaging in whataboutism for not criticizing or mocking Joe Biden for falling down the Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stairs enough, I suppose. Yet at the same time, 
I think it was Slate that came out and called me a right-wing podcaster. They, 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 they don't call me racist. They, they typically avoid calling me any of these typical, you know, they don't call me homophobe or anything like that. But they, I was recently called alt-right adjacent, which I don't even know what that means, especially considering I'm second generation mixed race and the alt-right literally hates me. It seems like if you're calling out everybody, maybe not equally, I absolutely have my biases, then you're going to get called the enemy of every single tribe and they'll assume you're the other tribe. So I, 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 I'm a fan of seeing conservatives call me a liberal and liberals call me a conservative, it's funny. So what are you, Tim? <laughs> we want, <laughs> I don't know. What do you call uh, yourself? So, you know, I recently took the political compass test and I am a fairly far left libertarian uh, on the political spectrum because I believe in regulation, I believe in international cooperation, I believe in taxing the rich. I also think if we're gonna do that, we have to make sure there's restrictions on what the government can do with the tax revenue because war is bad and they'll probably just blow up kids with that money. And I also think we don't want government to grow out of control either. So I end up being ideologically pretty far left, but when it comes to uh, politics and realism, I'm like, by American standards, in the United States, I would be considered a moderate uh, with, with libertarian leanings. And that's little L libertarian, not libertarian party, which I am not a fan of. But you, uh, you did say you voted for Trump last time. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I voted for Donald Trump and the other Republicans on the, t on, on the ticket in my area. And that was the libertarian in you? Uh, that was about a few things. Joe Biden was likely going to, it, it, was, it was Joe Biden and Trump. And as we know, it's gonna be one of the two. I don't vote for people based on not liking the other guy. But when looking at my options, Joe Biden was the vice president of the, under the Obama administration where they created this massive drone, pro, or I should say they escalated this massive drone program, bolstered the US president, president, uh, presence in the Middle East. Barack Obama signed the, the National Defense Authorization Act indefinite detention provision which is one of the most horrifyingly draconian things we've ever seen. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things they did. Barack Obama uh, authorized the extrajudicial assassinations of American citizens. I look at that with Joe Biden, I'm like, I'm, I'm never gonna support that. Now with Donald Trump, he had passed an executive order banning critical race theory in the government and contracting with companies that do that. That's very important. Donald Trump favored school choice, meaning that people in low income communities could choose to go to better schools. I thought that was very important. And Donald Trump uh, oversaw the Abraham Accords, bringing historical peace agreements in the Middle East. Donald Trump's policies in the Middle East were particularly bad for a long time. I mean, he hired John Bolton, who was a warmonger. He fired 59 Tomahawk missiles into Syria, freaking everybody out, at least the anti-war individuals. And he upped the drone strikes and obscured the reporting on official numbers. But seeing the Abraham Accords, seeing his attempts to pull our troops out of Syria and Afghanistan, seeing school choice and the banning of critical theory, I thought these were really, really important things we needed. Like I mentioned, Vox.com said Donald Trump ran as a moderate and won in 2016. It was only the media trying to create an opposition that called Donald Trump far right or fascist. So when you put your ex in the box, what was your biggest hesitation? What, what do you now think of as the worst thing he did and the thing that made you least comfortable voting for him? Donald Trump represents the absolute worst in American culture. He is, you know, if you were gonna take a stereotype of an American and crank it up to 11, you get Donald Trump. I do not believe he is a good person. I believe he is lewd, lascivious. I think he is very self-interested. However, I view him as an outsider and I saw him as a bull rampaging through the ivory tower as it were. 
and upsetting the established order, which could be beneficial in the long run, because for the time being, you know, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, the establishment, and this includes, you know, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, these do nothing Republicans, they, they don't care about actually helping the American people. So, you know, I view it as here's the problem. Donald Trump represents really, really bad things about being an American and American culture. I think that's a very, very serious thing because we want our children who grow up to look up to heroes, to have a president who is as foul-mouthed and unrepentant and unrestrained as Trump, I do feel is a bad thing for future generations. But I also think about it this way, just to put it simply. America will face setbacks and will face detriment because of what we've done overseas for, for generations. Joe Biden represented the war machine party. Donald Trump represented some kind of chaotic system that had seemed to be, in the end, anti-war. I thought this, and I told this to my friends, you may complain that Trump is, is awful, is racist and all these things. If Americans, in, in my view, are going to face some kind of detriment because of, of what they've done in the past, well, that's, that's the fault of Americans who keep electing warmonger presidents. So I view it as this. I'm willing to accept some, some neg negative aspects of Donald Trump if it means we are going to see a sol more solutions in the Middle East and an end to the, the, the warmongering policies of the United States. I guess I'd add one other big one, um, which I wonder what you think about, which is that the net effect of Trump has not really been positive, has it? That energy you talk about, which is the kind of bull in a china shop, disruptor, it's gonna stick it to the establishment and let's see what happens. If we look now at where we are, the establishment has not learned lessons. We're not in a wiser place. We're certainly not more harmonious. In fact, what's happened, thanks to that Trump era, is that we're more fractious and we're in quite a scary moment. So the kind of overall effect of him, I would say, has been negative. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to disagree, to be honest. But um, I will say you're right about the Trump era. I would also say, though, Trump is a symptom, not the cause of. What's been going on, if you look at, there's this really amazing uh, research put out by Zach Goldberg. He compiled uh, certain words from LexisNexis that appeared in newspapers and magazines, news outlets. And we found that the rise of rage bait content, hyperpolarizing media, frac uh, content that fractures this country started around 2008, 2009. I think that is what gives way to a Donald Trump. You end up with a culture war emerging you end up with critical theory affecting uh, movies, video games, comics, and a threat to real free speech. And then all of a sudden, you see this, this man, Donald Trump, and he became appealing to some former Democrat voters and younger voters. I traveled around the US in 2015 and 16, going to many Trump rallies. The older people that I spoke with said they supported Trump because of his policies on free trade to bring back factories to the US. They wanted their jobs back. But many of the younger Republicans I talked to said it was PC culture, it was the culture war, and, they, and what they said was like intersectional feminism and social justice warriors. That terminology has now kind of evolved into critical race theorists and uh, wokeness and things like that. That gave way to Trump. That gave him that little tiny bump. He only won by about, I think, 80,000 votes across three states. It was very, very close for him. Though many people like to say it was an electoral college landslide, it was 80,000 votes in three states. It was very, very narrow for Trump in the, in, the, in the bigger picture. However, it is true. From Trump, you had a personification of the right-wing populist and anti-PC rage that was Trump being this cranked up to 11 version of somebody who hates PC culture, 
was the perfect villain for the establishment who was able to use that to drive everyone else in the other direction. So I, I definitely think Trump contributed to that, but it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult question. When it comes down to who you're supposed to vote for, who you should vote for, and you have a choice between Joe Biden, who has vowed to exacerbate critical theory, race, gender, et cetera, and bring these things into government, which could be bad in my opinion, which will be bad for our country, and a, and a Donald Trump who says, I've already signed the executive, executive order banning this stuff, it seems like the conflict and escalation is inevitable, and we have to side with those who would oppose what I view as a very dangerous and racist set of uh, uh, ideal ideals that Joe Biden is absolutely now returning to the federal government and I think is going to get really, really awful for people in this country. Do you think there's any way out of this uh, in terms of, you know, we can fight a culture war on one or other side and you can have journalists like you who are criticizing the establishment and, and we can carry on in this sort of noisy way. Is there any way of actually bringing it together or getting out of this dynamic or do you think we're just stuck in it? And I feel like it's uh, it's dominoes falling over. And if you look if you look far down, you can see where the last domino is going to fall over and we're going to get into something really bad. There is a way out, obviously. Um, you know, I, I've, I've, I, you mentioned earlier on that I was a very strong critic of Biden. That's definitely true, but I've also tried to give him credit when he deserves it. There have been two things I've defended him on because I want to make sure that we can try and at least pull back from the edge of this extreme tribalism. Joe Biden's administration sanctioned China over the Uyghur Muslim abuses. I don't know if it's strategically the right move, but I respect the administration for taking action to stop what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims. And when it comes to the child migrant facilities under Joe Biden, I am I am absolutely defending the guy, same as I did for Donald Trump, because we don't want these kids who come here wandering through the desert. Now, I'll criticize Joe Biden over his larger policies on immigration, but we have to make sure that we're giving people respect and credit when they do good to encourage them to keep doing it. I don't think, however, that people on the right and people on the left want to do that for the other side for the most part. I see people on the left who will defend Joe Biden no matter what, even if he's doing things that they criticize Trump, you know, they criticized uh, Trump for, they don't care, it's about tribe. The bigger picture in my opinion is people want their tribe to win and that's it. Unless people are willing to come to the table and recognize what they've done wrong and what the other side does right, then it looks like we're just watching dominoes fall over one by one and eventually the last one's gonna fall over and it's gonna be chaos. If, it, if not, it already happened, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned China there. We just had a British MP who was sanctioned by China yesterday on the show. It feels like that could be one way that people could be brought together. I mean, it's a, in a way, it's a dark thought, but only a kind of actual civilizational standoff uh, would remind people what they have in common. I'd like to, I, I, I wanted to believe that I did. I thought for a long time, the threat posed by China and their human rights abuses would be a unifying factor in the United States. But now we're seeing a bunch of articles emerge from outlets like the Washington Post, where they say, criticizing China is Sinophobia that leads to violence against Asians. We're seeing, and I think for good reason, this, this stop uh, Asian hate, the, uh, you know, whatever the movement is, we're seeing many people speak, about, speak out against hate crimes against Asians, it's a good thing, but it's also creating this rhetoric that being critical of China is hysteria and we can't do it. And that's coming from the woke and the critical theorists. So it feels like even when we have a bigger threat and they're actually putting Muslims in concentration camps, there are still tribalists who don't want to admit that we have a common uh, crisis. 
They just want to be tribalists. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it's Chinese influence affecting U.S. media, encouraging these kinds of conversations to defend themselves and rip apart the United States. I've heard it from a lot of people who think that's true. I don't know, but I don't think we're, we're going to be unified on this one. And the, I think the younger generation in particular doesn't see a problem with a lot of that. I mean, we, we've been doing a lot of investigations into lockdowns and the kind of strategies that the Chinese government has employed to try and contain the virus and how those have now been replicated in Western nations. And some of the comments I've heard from people on the left in the US have really stunned me that actually they see no problem with it. You know, we, would, we were saying, oh, wouldn't it be a dystopian future if we all had to be surveilled wherever we went and had to check into every establishment? And a lot of these young people were just like, meh, that, that sounds fine to me. Yeah, there's a, there was a tweet from someone who said, uh, it was a Gen Z individual, that millennials entered the workforce after the economy collapsed and struggled. They still entered the workforce. Gen Z is entering a non-existent dystopian reality. So it's no surprise they don't care about what's going on. They've not lived in a world outside of this crisis. So to them, if you're at rock bottom, why should you care about what the government is doing? Why should you care about freedoms that you've not been able to experience? They've, you know, these are kids who were young during the financial crisis, and you know, and now they're finally old enough to get into work and to vote. And once again, we have another major crisis. So as far as they're concerned, just let the government do it. I think that's a bad. I think it's a problem, and it's going to create very negative uh, impacts in the future for sure. So in other words, the people we started off talking about those people who were protesting on Wall Street and in London and around the world in 2011, they have now reached a generation where maybe they are thinking differently, but their equivalents, the people who are 19 or 20 now, um, have a whole different way of seeing the world. And they might actually be much more comfortable with a less democratic, more technology-enabled, strong state, near-authoritarian regime than maybe you or I would. Maybe, maybe it's more nihilism than anything. Maybe it's that these young people don't care one way or another, and that's the easiest way to actually implement some kind of totalitarian system. Not through you know, thunderous applause or through fighting a resistance, but just having a generation of people who say, I just don't care. And then you can do whatever you want. We mentioned lockdowns there, and we are called Lockdown TV. I feel I need to uh, make sure we cover that. Um, What's your view been of the Western response to this? I mean, we on this channel, we have been careful to make sure we acknowledge that it's a serious threat. We've had voices from both sides on it, but we've certainly been questioning of some of the extreme measures that have been taken um, to con contain the virus. What's your view been? Yeah, I think uh, we were right early on to lock things down. It was the right move, restricting travel, all the right moves. The data that we were getting out of COVID was very scary. I did numerous segments talking about what we were seeing in China and why we needed to take it seriously. And 15 days to slow the spread. In fact, I would say that to me maybe seemed like not a long enough period of time. However, we're now well past the one year anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread. Somehow they said, we only want two weeks. And then as soon as everyone said that makes sense, they turned it into over a year. That doesn't seem to have actually changed things. So. At least some of the data that's come out, you can see no strong correlation between lockdowns. In fact, some data suggests that while the lockdowns may have had a positive effect in some areas, it may have also had a negative effect in others, notably that people who are essential workers were, were spreading COVID inside their own homes, 
which resulted in several uh, po politicians in the US, I believe in Europe, saying perhaps you need to wear masks in your own homes now. It seems like what we needed was people to get exposure to the sun for vitamin D. Dr. Fauci recommended this. He recommended vitamin D supplements because of this and to stay in open outdoor spaces where they were less likely tra to transmit. Maybe a hybrid solution um, is something I proposed that the most vulnerable are protected. We have a semi lockdown where younger people who are less likely to be adversely effective, keep, uh, affected keep working. And those in nursing homes, those with uh, um, compromised immune systems are provided uh, special protections. And so we wanted to keep the economy running for the sake of people's lives, their jobs, and their ability to eat. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't confining people into in, in conditions that would exacerbate COVID. I don't blame any of the politicians for wanting to implement these policies because look, we really just didn't know. If someone made a decision and it was the wrong decision, I'm not gonna attack them unless they knew. Well, now I think we have a lot of data coming out. In the United States, for instance, Florida, their numbers are, are, are actually well below the national average for COVID deaths, and Florida has been particularly lax on the lockdown. Maybe we need to start looking at the hard numbers in places like Sweden, perhaps, which absolutely wasn't per perfect. They actually they had, they had a big surge, but they played it different from a lot of other countries. You look at some of these other states in the US that have very different policies, maybe it's time to start looking at the hard data and reassessing whether or not the lockdowns actually worked or are working. Okay, I'm gonna ask you to finish off by doing something really quite hard, and we haven't given you any preparation for this, so you need to think on your feet here, Tim. We talked about 10 years ago this year, 2011. If we were gonna talk again in 10 years' time, um, where do you think, give me a sense of what the best case and the worst case scenario is. We've talked about how all of these structures of the power, whether they're the media or culture or Hollywood or academia, have all been sort of taken over by certain ideas at the moment. Fast forward 10 years, what's the best case and the worst case look like? 10 years from now, and I think these are both part of, uh, the best case and the worst case scenario are actually part of the, it's one scenario. Looking at Strauss-How generational theory, and just, I guess, assuming these researchers were correct, these academics, 10 years from now, we will be in what's called the spring generation, where it will be a, a, a magical boom. People will be happy and prosperous. The world will be regrowing and rebuilding. People uh, will, will see their income skyrocketing and will probably accomplish some fairly amazing feats in this time period. Now, the worst case scenario is that according to Strauss-Hau generational theory, this means by 2028, we are going to see the climax of the winter generation. This was akin to the end of World War II, which means up until that point, we may see a very serious and dramatic escalation of violence, a major conflict, war perhaps. There's another concept called Thucydides' trap, which suggests the US is headed for an inevitable war with China due to their economic expansion. If that is what we can expect to see in the winter uh, season of Strauss-Hau generational theory, then it's possible as they predict, this war will be fought with the most powerful weapons available, and that could be nuclear war. Hopefully that won't be the case. And hopefully the most powerful weapon today is not nuclear weapons, it's actually social media and information technology, in which case, the winter period, we're in it. It should peak around 2028, and we will see very serious conflict. We will, we will see very, just awful things, atrocities. But at the end of this period, we're supposed to see things improve. So I'm hoping that while we may go through very severe hardship in the next several years, maybe 10 years from now, we're all gonna be very, very well off and everything will just be in a new booming period 
which we'll see another 60 years of prosperity, which uh, probably is a good thing. So hopefully that's true. Hopefully they're wrong about the winter hypothesis and uh, we avoid any major conflict. Well, Tim, I will definitely take that. The, the, it's gonna, it sounds like it's gonna be a long winter, but by the time, <laughs> hopefully we'll talk before then, but if we talk in 10 years time, we're gonna be enjoying this uh, balmy spring and uh, 60 years so. of merriment. I, I'll definitely sign up for that. Tim Pool, thank you so much for your thoughts. Thanks for having me. That was Tim Poole, a YouTuber, gonzo journalist, media innovator, sharing his thoughts about everything from big tech and media censorship through to Biden and Trump and you name it, and ended there, I think, with some really quite positive ideas that come 2028, the winter may be over and spring is going to start. So I look forward to that. Let's hope he's right. At least let's hope spring comes a little sooner than that. Thanks for tuning in. This was Lockdown TV.